Your move, creep. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. The only thing I know how to do. It's a good-looking boy. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate. That's right, Lord. Welcome to Earth. You crossed the line. You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about older movies. We talk about how they were made, how they were received, and whether or not they hold up. I am Austin. And I'm George. All right, so we are going to continue with our spooky month of spooky movies. So we've done Hocus Pocus, Hellraiser, Constantine, and now we've got an uh, we've got another banger for you guys, a classic horror film that I'm really excited to talk about, and it's celebrating its 40th anniversary. So now is the best time to rewatch this film. Austin, what movie are we going to be talking about this week? This week, we will be talking about 1982's The Thing, directed by the legendary John Carpenter. Starring Kurt Russell. Which you know, when you've got John Carpenter and Kurt Russell, you know you're going to get a banger. Right? Escape from New York, Escape from L.A. You've got Big Troubles in Little China. I love Big Trouble in Little China. I haven't seen it, but... I've seen Escape from New York, and I I wasn't too big of a fan of it. But I know it's like one of those like cult classics. You know, like they based uh, Snake, the Metal Gear character, yeah. off of Snake Plissken from Escape from New York. That's why I love them. I love because I love Metal Gear. I've played the <laughs> game... All of them growing up, and then I saw Escape from New York. I was like, oh, shit. He he looks a lot like Snake. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, look, John Carpenter, classic filmmaker. This is going to be our Mm -hmm. first film. Wow, it is. It's a great place to start, too, I assume, because I've actually never seen this movie. Interesting. Did you ever see part of it? I feel like... I've seen part of it. Okay. Like, I know there's, like, some crazy prosthetics that that come into play in this movie there's there's some body horror and i've seen parts of that i've seen the original film uh from the 60s or 50s mm. uh the thing from outer space i think it was called gotcha okay interesting i've never actually seen that one i have seen the 82 version and i haven't seen the 11 version the 2011 which mm. was a prequel to this film but okay i think if you haven't seen this movie, you've definitely seen parts of it because I feel like the yeah. thing is so popular now that you might see some YouTube compilations of like best horror films and the thing. A few clips yeah. of it will be in there or like You'd probably watch like 100 people react to watching this movie, too. Exactly. Or like you'll see the prosthetics that they use for the creature. You've probably seen something like that. So you're probably familiar with this movie to a certain extent if you haven't seen it. But. We're going to be watching it this week, and I'm really excited. I love this film. When I talk about horror films, you know, some of the few that I watched in the very beginning kind of really made me scare, scared, but I really loved it. Like The Conjuring, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Those are movies that really stress me out. The Descent is another one that when you watch it, you're you're actually scared. You're anxious. Your blood's rushing. Especially The Descent, that movie fucked me up. But (laughs) with The Thing, it's still a great horror film. But I like it because it's more of like a whodunit. 
you know, kind of <laughs> in a way. <laughs> and it's it's a great mystery. Like yeah. it's got some great horror elements. There are some jump scares in this movie that fucked me up. So I'm not trying to say that I'm not scared of this movie. But there was like there's a level of terror in like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or the Conjuring or the Descent that just keeps you on edge. Here, what kept me on edge was the mystery. Because for those of you who don't know, the thing is about a creature that can shapeshift, that can shapeshift into different people, animals, organisms, right? It was the mystery of, okay, who is it now? And and in there, there came some really great jump scares, some horror moments. I'm not going to say I wasn't scared from them. They freaked me out. But it was I was more intrigued about what was happening and how these characters just slowly lose their minds. Because you have an average group of workers up in uh, the North Pole or the South Pole. I can't remember exactly. And it's just seeing them slowly descent into madness. That was so cool to watch. And then you've got the mystery and you've got horror. It's like, oh, it's that sweet spot of like, Action, horror, entertainment, mystery, suspense. It's it's got all those things instead of like the descent, which I would say is probably straight up horror. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. but I'm not trying to say that's a bad thing. If that makes sense, Austin. Okay. I watched this movie back in college, because that's when I was really starting to get into the groove of horror. I think I might have seen that in my room. You know, because like late night in my dorm room, I had nothing to do. So I was like, oh, I'll just watch this. You know, I, I finally need to watch it. And I think I saw the, th- the thing like that. And I really loved it. I enjoyed it. The mystery, all of those elements. It was really well made. Um, and it left an impression on me. I was like, holy shit. I want to go back and try to piece out how the, the thing's movement. You know, like, mm-hmm. okay, so it started here. Now, now, where did it go exactly? What, What is it, you know, and try to see things. <laughs> the movie has an ambiguous ending, you know, s- slight spoilers, I guess, but uh-huh. the movie's 40 years old. It has a slight ambiguous ending and people have been debating about it. What happened? And I think revisiting this movie, I'm going to try to keep track of, okay, what? Ooh, what? What's this final mystery? And can I put a pin in it? Okay. I'm really curious to see that revisit the story because this movie also does leave the the origin of the thing a mystery you know you 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 see what it did to these norwegian scientists but it's all it's all ambiguous nobody's here saying this thing attacked us at this time and it did this and it no you just see a old abandoned base and a lot of fucked up things happened and you have to piece together what happened i think that's brilliant all right well, I will be curious to finally see this movie. It's been something that I've, I know of. I know that whole, like, who is it this time? Is it you? Is it is it him? It's like it plays on that paranoia mm-hmm. kind of thing. And that was something that was very common when the original movie came out. The thing from another world. It's all about like, oh, it could happen to you, it could happen to it's it's happening to us, something is changing us. It played into that like fear of communism from the Red Scare. The Red Scare, yeah. Or maybe the fear of being accused of something that you're not guilty of and everyone treats you like you're the guilty one. You know, Ooh, it's mob mentality. It goes into that place, at least the original one did, and I'm sure this one does too. Mm-hmm. Uh so that's gonna be pretty cool. And I wonder how it's gonna feel Watching this movie during post, we're still kind of in a pandemic, so during during COVID. 
Well, it's interesting because I feel like during COVID, or obviously not to the same extremes as this movie, but you know, it was like, well, I had it. Now I was with all of you and one of you gave it to me and Mm -hmm. trying to piece together who was sick and whatnot. I mean, you know, it's, I was with this person, so it can't be him. And it's like, how can we trust you? It's like, well, you just gotta. (laughs) So it's that same kind of mentality. It'd be really interesting. And again, it's 40 years since then. And I mean, 40 years, 40 years. I, oh man. So I'm really curious to see just how this movie looks. I mean, I remember looking at it and being like, oh, this, this looks incredible. The, The special effects have aged wonderfully, but you know, it's been a few years since then. I'm gonna. I have. I've seen mm-hmm. this movie. I'd say like maybe three times, and every time I think I I've thought it holds up. But now you know, looking at it with a more critical eye, I'm curious to see what it's like. Let's talk about 1982. 1982. This movie came out, and it was not a huge success. If you oh, can no. believe that, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it was very well received critically either. Um, but we can we'll talk about that later. As far as numbers go, did not do very well. It had a fifteen million dollar budget and only made nineteen point six million, which is not a great investment. No, you have to think about the marketing and stuff. You have to think at what the projections were for the original film or what the film were. Nineteen is not good at all. But let's talk about what did do very well in nineteen eighty two. Number one. At the box office was also Universal's Pictures movie. Um, you want to guess what it is? I don't know. E.T. The extraterrestrial. Oh shit! Of course. <laughs> oh, and it <laughs> celebrated its fortieth too. God damn. Yeah, all of these movies are going to be celebrating their fortieth. <laughs> um, I saw E.T. E. in theaters. Yeah, E.T. Huge hit. It did very well at the box office. Number one movie at the domestic box office. Number two. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Wait, you, you're saying Spielberg like had two films? Spielberg had two films? Shit. I feel like, did that come out in 82 originally? No, it came out in June and they, in June of 81. Oh, and it just kept Damn, playing? Movie. I guess so. Wow. That's crazy. Why is that here? That seems unfair. <laughs> uh, number three, Rocky Three. Okay. The beginning of the end of the quality of Rocky movies. Well, you know, once they brought out, what's his name? Um, Hulk Hogan in it. It's like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, it's, it's a Rocky movie. Uh, number four, On Golden Pond, a movie I've never heard of before. Okay. Number five, An Officer and a Gentleman. Never heard of that. Number six, Porky's. I have heard of it. I have heard and seen this movie. It was like the beginning of the whole like raunchy teen sex comedy genre. Oh, okay. It's so wild that the guy who directed Porky's was the same person who directed A Christmas Story and Black Christmas. Whoa. I have seen Black Christmas. That movie is wild. Yeah, so it's like the slasher movie, the teen sex comedy, and the holiday Christmas movie. (laughs) Well, like all right. Good, good his, on him. Yeah. Um, number seven, Arthur. Hey, Arthur. I don't think it's that Arthur. <laughs> it's the, the alcoholic billionaire playboy who must marry a woman who he does not love or he'll be cut off from his $750 million fortune. Oh. But he falls in love with a poor waitress 
and now he must choose between love or money. Money, bro. Um, number eight, Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Okay. Number nine, Poltergeist. Mm. And number ten, the best little whorehouse in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I am really curious to hear about that movie. I have never heard of this movie. I've never movie. heard of it. I have. To, I have to, the biggest, the best little whorehouse in Texas. Burt Reynolds, Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. Huh. What is the synopsis? A town sheriff and regular patron of a historical whorehouse fights to keep it running when a television reporter targets it as the devil's playhouse. Okay, that sounds kind of cool. What a time to be alive. This would never place top 10 in 2022. No, 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 no. 100%. None of these movies would. Maybe uh, Indiana Jones and Rocky. But but that that was the first Indiana Jones, right? Yeah, but... No, there's no way. If it was a sequel, maybe, but there's no way. Also coming out this year, Chariots of Fire, Conan mm. the Barbarian, uh, Friday the 13th Part 3, uh, First Blood, the first Rambo movie. So he's got First Blood and Rocky Three. Yeah, damn. Also got Tron, Blade Ooh. Runner, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, The Road Warrior. The Road Warrior is Mad Max 2. But the sequel, yeah, right? Yeah, but in the States, yeah. you know, Bad Max 1 didn't really get like a huge release. So I guess they mm. called it the Road Warrior so they didn't have to, you know, you don't have Americans going, what's Mad Max 2? I haven't even seen Mad Max 1. I can't see this. But you can see the Road mm. Warrior, right? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I think that's the, the logic there. But maybe hey, it, when we go back to Mad Max 2, we'll bring Nebula. And Nebula will be able to tell us, is, is our uh, resident Mad Max expert so oh i was i I wasn't even thinking about it i I figured nebula was gonna be in it of course yes but yeah that was 1982 and and on this list the the thing at the domestic box office placed 43 (whistles) it didn't even open to a thousand theaters damn really that's a small opening i mean nowadays movies like a disney one will come out to movie theaters of 3000 plus Mm -hmm. that's a disney movie obviously it gets more but like the thing for less than a thousand yeah this yeah on its debut or its first week it was eighth It, it what eighth so of all the movies that were out on the weekend that the thing came out seven movies did better than the thing Jesus. More it wasn't people, even top five. No, more people went to go see uh like everything else. <laughs> that whole so this was a colossal failure. But mm-hmm. the uh, uh, another movie from this year, Blade Runner. Blade Runner Blade Runner was another failure. If you look at the if you look at the box office for that movie, it did not do well at all. Critically, people didn't like it. How many cuts of that movie are there? You know, it was confusing people. But now, 40 years later, Blade Runner is considered one of the greatest science fiction films of all time. The thing people could say it's one of the greatest horror films of all time. Mm-hmm. Right. From two filmmakers that are very acclaimed, Ridley Scott and John Carpenter. Right. John Carpenter has yeah. made things that are synonymous with pop culture. I mean, Escape from New York, Halloween, The Thing. I mean, even uh, Jordan Peele said that. When someone said that Jordan Peele was one of the greatest horror directors of all time, even Jordan <laughs> Peele was like, eh, it's John Carpenter. Like, Yeah, I remember that. He, it was the guy said, has anybody touched Jordan Peele's greatness? 
he's the greatest of all time. And then somebody said, what about John Carpenter? And he's like, John Carpenter is okay sometimes or something. And then Jordan Peele responded with like, <laughs> sir, please stay off the internet for today. <laughs> but, but you know, and look, and look, Jordan Peele's amazing, but come on, John Carpenter, he has been very influential. Um, yeah. And his, his movies, uh, at one point or another, one point or another, did not get a lot of appreciation. Granted, the biggest thing was Halloween, um, mm-hmm. but I mean, he's known for so much more than that. So that's why I'm I'm happy we're talking about the thing, and I'm happy to give this movie its due credit because you know people critics hated this movie. They said it was they called it instant junk and a wretched excess. This movie oh did re- really poorly at the box office, and now it's a cultural phenomenon. You know, like it's it's a milestone. It's it's you you know the thing so yeah if if i tell other film people i haven't seen the thing they give me the what yeah are you serious you know oh, it's you, one you, of those movies you you go to regular people it's like i've never seen the thing it's like oh you mean the 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 scary one what what haven't you yeah so it's i'm really happy to talk about it and um i'm really ready to get into so why was this movie a disaster like upon its release was it just the times was it too far ahead um that were people's sensibilities just not for this kind of horror because i doubt that this was a movie that r- really pushed the edge in terms of violence and horror i mean maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm wrong i think I- if you look at the other movies that place in the top 10 this movie definitely has kind of uh it seems a little darker in tone than the others like et is like a sweet wholesome movie you know, Absolutely. the best, the best little whorehouse in Texas that it, it's about a cop saving a whorehouse that I I'm guess. assuming Dolly Parton works in. Yeah, but that I sounds like, kind of edgy. I don't think so. If you look at the poster for the movie, it sounds like a, a grand old time. There's like they're smiling. They're, they're hugging each other. There's there's like a guy who's clearly like the villain, but he's like he's like a uh, twirling mustache villain you know he's just so over the top like this storehouse must be taken down you know it seems like a very light movie I guess despite, I, despite the title I one thing I am curious about is I think you said the key word dark yeah this movie is nihilistic it is a bit because I think maybe what I'm curious about is audiences maybe don't like seeing people um in like shown in a negative light do you know what i mean like I, I, this movie kind of reminds me of the mist right that came mm-hmm. out like in 2000 in the 2006 7 and it's by um frank darabont who did um the green mile he did shawshank redemption and if you have seen the mist that movie is dark it is fucking dark the ending is one of the most depressing endings of all time i think it, if you look at a list it's definitely on there uh, and the movie has a lot, a lot of despicable people or people who do things that are very questionable, but they do it because they're scared. Mm-hmm. I wonder if maybe that has something to do with it, that maybe upon release, audiences don't like seeing people shown in a nihilistic, cynical, dark way where the villains are the main characters, you know? Yeah, I don't think people like seeing the main characters in a negative light, perhaps, because I think audiences are okay with seeing like teenagers get their comeuppance um when they're having sex and jason or freddie kill them or whatever you know um i think 
they got used to that. But I think when you have a group of people that are rational at the beginning, but by the end, just become mad and insane and, you know, do awful things to each other. I think maybe there's something in there that is hard for audiences to digest. That's just my guessing. Because again, the thing, the mist. Blade Runner. Well, Blade Runner. Well, I can I know why Blade Runner then wasn't successful because it wasn't. It's Harrison Ford in a science fiction world that is super moody, super slow, and super dark. Like it is. People wanted Indiana Jones in cyberspace and cyberpunk. That's not what they got. They wanted him to like kill really bad robots, but not robots that we feel sorry for. Exactly. <laughs> or, and and people were like, I don't get it. They're they're robots. Why does it matter? Just kill them. You know, but, yeah. but I, I think in the in the time that's that. But that I, that movie failed for different reasons. I think people expected it to be an action science fiction film where it was a science, a thinking science fiction film where it was. Like, I do think that they're both kind of dark, though, like the, the Blade Runner oh, takes yeah. place in the future, but it doesn't look like a future that we would want to live in. Yet it looks very much like the world we are living in today. It, it is dark in it is dark. I don't think as dark as this one, mm-hmm. um, but I'm, I'm. But Blade Runner is a movie for another time because that's that's a yeah. lot to digest. I, so that's why I'm curious about the thing. Maybe audiences just don't like seeing people in that negative of light. I think that's definitely part of it, and I'm sure that there's a ton of think pieces about that too. Yeah. Like if you go to the Wikipedia page, it's like somebody's up there at the top says that same thing. Yeah, so when we come back with the research part of the episode, we'll definitely look into that. We'll look into some of the reviews. Um, I'm curious about why John Carpenter's The Thing looks this way when the original film was was not as dark as this. Uh, I'm curious what happened. Um, and the special effects, because I know this this is a movie that is known for the amount of prosthetics because there's no there was very little cgi at this point very very little almost none so all the crazy stuff you see was all people making puppets and animatronics and and trying to make it look as real as possible um so i want to see how that is aged i'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure it's it's going to be great to see and to see the behind the scenes because one of the great things about doing these old movies these older movies is that there's so many people who want to tell their story of how they made the movie behind the scenes. So it's going to be really fun to dig into. Yeah. hundred percent. Okay. So we will see you in one. Wait, 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 we, we gotta, we gotta tell people how to watch the movie. Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh my God. If we ever get sponsored, they will make us tell them (laughs) where to see. It's probably gonna be Peacock or okay. It is on Peacock with a subscription. Um, you can rent it from YouTube, Apple TV, and Amazon uh, for four dollars. I feel like four dollars is is great for a horror movie, you know. Hundred um, percent. Peacock. I think you can stream it with commercials for free. But mm-hmm. I'll get back to you in one minute when we come back with the rest of the episode. I know I'm human. If you were all these things, then you'd just attack me right now. So some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. 
If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. There's a storm hitting us in six hours. We're gonna find out who's who. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. We have just finished watching 1982's The Thing, directed by John Carpenter. This is the first time I have ever seen this movie. And I think it was really, really good. All right. I'm I'm happy you're saying that. (laughs) 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 <laughs> was there a suspense in, in how I would feel about this movie? Yeah, because sometimes there are some movies that I'm like, oh, he's going to like this. And then you're like, no, I don't like it. And I'm like, well, <laughs> all right. But then there's some stuff where I'm like, oh, he's definitely not going to like this. And you're like, oh, no, I loved it. And I'm like, well, what the fuck then? Really? Am I that hard to figure out? Sometimes I'll clue in on it, but there's just some curveballs. But uh, but no, I'm glad you like this film. Uh, it's a very good film. Very underappreciated when it came out. I I do believe we have some quotes of some people who did not like the movie oh, when it yeah, came out. Oh yeah, we have plenty. But yeah, I really liked it. I thought it held it holds up very well. I think there are parts where it's like, oh my god, where I'm reacting, oh my god, you know. <laughs> so it still has that like shock factor, but it's not just the shock factor. There's a point in this movie where I was like obviously it's this guy and then it's it's not and i'm like oh oh the thing is really smart and that makes it more enjoyable to watch again and it makes it fun to like like you said before it's like a mystery movie and you can kind of go back and and like understand why certain characters did some things and why the thing takes over who it takes over it's it's a really well-made movie it plays a lot with perspective you know, because mm-hmm. the movie takes place over a few days. Right. And there are instances where the film would just fade in and fade out. And you'll see characters like go go up to a shack and then the film will fade out, fades in. And it's like 45 minutes have passed. It's like, what the fuck has happened in those 45 minutes? We don't know. Yeah. The characters yeah. <laughs> in the film don't know from from their perspective. And mm-hmm. the other character comes in. It's like this happened. It's like, well, I don't know if I could trust what you're showing me because it's proof. But. Clearly, this thing is smart. <laughs> so it it plays yeah. a lot with perspective. It really fucks with you. It is really a whodunit, uh, but a super dark one, like a really nihilistic take, like in the horror genre uh, that is super violent, too. <laughs> so it, it's a great concoction of all these different things. And I think... I think it's my favorite John Carpenter film, you know, and really, wow. I, I, wa- I rewatched Halloween a few years ago, and that film is really, really good. I love the original Halloween, but there is something about the thing. It's like all the right ingredients are in here. I'm sure there are people that there are some criticisms that people can point to, but it's like I don't really care about them. Like, I don't. Yeah, I don't think there's any of them that are sh- are strong enough to make it a bad movie yes like if someone came up if someone came up to me is like well here's an issue with the film i could be like oh i acknowledge it but i doubt it will really change the way i feel about it you know yeah it's overall fantastic i recommend rewatching it it's like a great horror film to watch uh this does lean into more of the like hellraiser side of things i mean it it's kind of like hellraiser in the sense that there is that cosmic horror because you know 
Hellraiser uh, pinheads kind of from from another world, you know, inter another dimension and stuff. So there is that cosmic horror element to it. And like Hellraiser, this movie has some very graphic violence, um, mm-hmm. you know, because you see like limbs and, you know, appendages <laughs> yeah. and 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 that that was something that threw audiences off when they first saw it back in 82 there are some dogs that unfortunately don't make it to the end of the movie oh yeah the dogs the dogs get horrible deaths like it is and it's a long one too like it is a scene it is like minutes of you of you seeing these dogs just being assimilated and being reanimated and it's like holy shit you know Mm -hmm. so if you if you have issues with violence against pets and dogs, yeah, don't stay the fuck away from this movie then. <laughs> but but like it's not done in a way that you're like supposed to like what's happening. Is, no, if no, that's what you're worried about. No, 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 absolutely not. Like, I mean, there is like this fascination with how far they could take these effects and this creature. So I think they're I think the filmmakers did take some glee in a way into how far they could push it and creatively coming up with something that designing a creature that has been through two different planets and different regions of the galaxy and that has assimilated with other creatures. You could see that here. And I think the filmmakers are pushing that limit, but it's not like, Oh my God, look at these dogs getting killed. Isn't that cuff? Isn't that fun? No, that's, that's not, it's definitely the special effects. The creature effects are really fun. Mm-hmm. And it's a really fascinating movie to watch. And I think it holds up now. Um, because, well, I guess we'll get into that when we get into it. But I think it holds up very well. Absolutely. As we said before, you can watch this movie on YouTube and Amazon and all those like streaming rental sites. But if you have a Peacock membership, you can actually stream it on the Peacock app or Peacock service. Because it is a universal movie. It's mm-hmm. like one of their one of their babies that they didn't appreciate at the at the beginning. But now it's... It's a classic. This is the part of the episode where we talk about what happens in the movie to give context to the conversation we're about to have. So if you're driving, if you haven't seen the movie, if you don't want to watch it, you're too scared, this is for you. Um, So the movie starts in Antarctica, and we see a helicopter chasing a dog. And the people in the helicopter are shooting at the dog. It's really like, wow, why are they trying to kill this poor dog? And they're chasing the dog all the way over to this American research base. And then the dog is like, help, these people are trying to kill me. And the helicopter lands. They're like throwing like uh, grenades at the, <laughs> at the dog. Um, and the, the people come out of the helicopter and they're speaking uh, Norwegian. And the Americans don't understand them. And they're trying to still shoot the dog and ends up uh, wounding one of the the Americans. And then the dog keeps running like further into the, the base. And a guy is trying to throw a grenade at it, but he drops the grenade and blows up, blows himself up and the helicopter. And then the other guy gets shot by the guy who's kind of in charge, Gary. Um, so he shoots the Norwegian in the head and kills him. So they're like, why did these Norwegians attack us? We have no idea. A brief overview of the characters. Gary, he's, he's the guy in charge. He's got the gun. And then, then there's Kurt Russell, who plays McCready, who is the helicopter pilot for the Americans. And then you have Blair, uh, who is the 
biologist. He's like the really smart one. You have Nalls, the cook. Palmer, he's a, he's a mechanic. A child who's played by Keith David, who's another mechanic. Uh, you have Dr. Copper, who's like the medical doctor. Uh, you have Norris, who is a geologist. Bennings, who is a meteorologist. Clark, who's the dog guy. Gary, the guy in charge. Fuchs is the assistant biologist. He's like the second smartest guy, I would say. Then you have Windows, who's the radio operator. I know it's a complicated list of characters to, to, to hear. You kind of have to have this so that you can understand and trace like what's happening with the thing and, and how it like transfers itself. Um, but anyway, they're trying to figure out why the Norwegians were attacking them. They figure out where the Norwegians are from. Clark, the dog guy, he's just kind of hanging out with the dog. It's not one of their dogs, but they have dogs at the station. They fly off. The McCready takes a doctor, Dr. Copper, and somebody else to go check out the Norwegians. And it's, it's like everybody's dead there. It, the station is pretty much burned to the ground. And there's this like block of ice that they, they find that's like empty. And there's like this weird creature in the snow that's like burnt up. And it looks like a human, but it doesn't look like a human. They take it back. They do like a, little, a bit of an autopsy on it. And they're like, okay, well, it's, it seems like it's part human. Um, and they put the dog with the rest of the other dogs. And then the dog transforms. It's not really a dog. It's like a monster. And it starts to attack everything, all the other dogs in the kennel. And the dogs are like, get this the fuck out of here. We need to go. Uh, so the people come back and they use flamethrowers to burn the monster. And then they take the monster, they do an autopsy, and the biologist discovers, uh, Blair, he discovers that there's, it's an alien that can shapeshift. It can, like, infect and imitate creatures perfectly. That's why in the autopsy, everything looked normal. And he's like, I know Clark was alone with that dog, so he's very suspicious of Clark. And then he runs, like, a test, and he finds out that if the organism goes back to the main population, it could like pretty much take over the world within a, within a few uh, days. So he goes to like a very dark place. He's not, he's not trusting anybody. He's suspicious of everybody. He wants every, he wants to kill pretty much prevent anyone from leaving the station. McCready. He's like, he doesn't really care about people. He keeps calling the Norwegian Swedes. He's drinks he like plays chess with the computer and then he gets mad when he loses and he uh, destroys the chess computer. Fuchs, he talks, he kind of trusts McCready and he tells him about the seriousness of this alien. And when they find out that the thing isn't really dead yet, they try to like uh, lock it down and burn the, the corpse even further. But by that point, it's already infected somebody. It, I think at this point it infects Bennings. Bennings. They uh, look for Bennings and then they see him almost transforming. He doesn't, he like screams at them. It's really like scary scream and they burn him. And then they're like, wow, okay, this is bad. And then Blair, the, the biologist who figured out everything's going to go to shit. He starts like smashing up equipment. He starts destroying the helicopter and the tractor. And he gets his gun and he's like, nobody's getting close to me. Nobody's leaving this, this outpost. 
and eventually they're able to like subdue him and then lock him away and then he tells McCready I don't know who to trust but watch Clark so McCready goes and talks to the rest of the people and he's like um he said to watch Clark uh, and is there a way, is there some kind of a test we can use to like d- determine who is human and who is an imitation? And then the, like the medical doctor, uh, copper, he's like, well, there's a test, but I, I need to use the, get to the blood and we can test infected blood with the, with normal blood. And by the time they get to the blood bank, all the blood has been sabotaged. And they're like, wait, who had the keys to the blood? And so they're suspicious of the doctor and they're suspicious of the guy who's in charge, Gary. And Windows, the the radio operator, he's like, I don't trust anybody. I'm going to go grab a gun. And there's like this Mexican standoff between Gary and, and Windows. Gary's he relieves himself of his command. And he's like, Norris, I, th- I feel like everyone likes you. So why don't you be in charge? And Norris is like, uh, this is too much responsibility. I don't think so. So then McCready becomes the group's kind of de facto leader. He gives like this speech, which is in the trailer. It's a really cool scene. And Fuchs, he's trying to to pick up where Blair left off and, and like how they can contain this, how they can fight this, how they can all make it. And then he gets taken out. And then they're like, okay, who got Fuchs? What happened, what happened to him? McCready and Nalls, the cook, they go check out McCready's cabin because when he left, he turned the light off. And then McCready gets lost in the storm. Niles comes back and he's like, it's McCready. Look at this. His, his shirt's all ripped up like when the creatures got to him. So they're like, all right, let's lock McCready out in the cold. But McCready, he's, he's pretty smart. Um, and he grabs a bunch of dynamite. And he's like, you, if you try to kill me, I'm going to kill everybody. I'm taking out this entire camp. So he pretty much takes control of the situation by force. At this point, uh, Norris gets a heart attack, and then they go to operate on him, and then it turns out Norris was a thing. And he turns, he transforms, and he, like, kills Dr. Copper. He's, his head, like, transforms into, like, a spider thing and tries to get away, but they burn it. And the entire time, for, like, the rest of the movie, McCready has dynamite strapped to his chest. And he's like, if anyone does anything suspicious, I'm going to blow everybody up. So he ties everybody up. And he's like, all right, when Norris transformed, it seemed like every part of him was alive. So if we take a sample of people's blood and burn it, and if the, the, if the blood reacts, then we know they're an alien. So he tests everybody, and he's like, I'm suspicious of Gary because he had the keys to the blood, so I'm going to test you last. And then it turns out it was actually Palmer? I think that's his name, Palmer, yeah. Palmer, who's also like the backup helicopter pilot. Uh, but and it's, it's Palmer and he's transforming and windows, the radio operator, the guy who was scared towards the beginning, he gets taken out and they burn him. And then they're like, they test everybody else. Oh, before that Clark, he tries to kill McCready and McCready shoots him in the head and it turns out he wasn't the thing at all. The guy with the dogs was never infected. Um, so they're the only person left to test is Blair. So when they go test, try to find Blair, he's missing. And then the camp's uh, power generator is taken out. And then one by one, the Blair thing is like taking everybody out. They discover that Blair was trying to build a spaceship. So they blow up the spaceship. And at this point, McCready's like scorched earth. 
that thing doesn't leave, even if we don't. Um, and eventually, McCready's like the last one left, and he throws a, a stick of dynamite at the big thing, blows it up, and then he's like going off to a corner to die in. And then Childs comes out, and he's like, "Did you kill it?" And he's like, "Yeah." How do I know you're you? Where were you? And he's and they're like, "Well." well. What do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. And they just kind of sit there and possibly freeze to death. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Super depressing ending. <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but it fits perfectly. I mean, this is not a happy, cheery movie. There's moments where it's kind of funny, but I mean, it's like maybe what five percent of the movie. That's yeah, parts of it do, do make me laugh. Oh yeah, yeah. no, um, but I'm someone who laughs at things that aren't like necessarily meant to be funny. I mm-hmm. just find them entertaining, and my reaction is to laugh. Yeah, when they're trying to do the uh, there's a scene with the defibrillators where the doctor is trying to like bring Norris back because Norris had like a heart attack or something. And the, the stomach opens up and chomps his arms away. Like that, that's not funny, but I laugh because I did not expect that to happen. You're in shock. It kind of, you're just like, Whoa, that totally caught me off guard. Yeah. It happens. Cause I know about the scene. I just, didn't expect it to happen so soon. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, usually there's like a tease of like, oh, it's going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. It's going to happen. There's no tease. It just happens. Well, at that moment, there's so much else that's happening, right? Because it's mm-hmm. not just Norris. It's like people aren't trusting McCready. All of this is happening while Norris has is being defibrillated, defibrillated, you know, being defibrillated. <laughs> yeah, by copper. And it, it just comes out of nowhere. You know, you weren't really expecting that to happen. Um, really fun fact, real quick about that scene. Just fun fact that I thought was interesting. They actually got an amputee to play the doctor when they're doing the shot of his arms getting crushed. So they put yeah. like wax arms on him and they filled it with like, um, with like, you know, bone material or material that was, that resembled bone. So when it chomped down, you know, that's how they were able to get it in that one shot. Didn't he wear a mask too? Like the amputee? The, the A mask? Yeah, the the amputee that that was the doctor's double was wearing a mask of the actor. Oh, was he? Yeah, it's so fast you don't really notice it. But I guarantee you, if you look back at that scene and look at his face, it's going to look weird. Because I I did. (laughs) I didn't notice that at all. But I noticed they they were talking about the arm thing. And I was like, oh, that reminded me a lot of like what they did with Spider-Man 3. You know, when Peter punches Sandman and his harm, his hands coming out from the from from behind Sandman, they used an amputee to film that. And I was like, oh, that's pretty creative how you did that. Mm-hmm. But the scene is so cool. It does come out of nowhere and it's extremely violent, too. You know, it's and the idea violent. of these giant uh, alien teeth just breaking through your arms like it's nothing, you know, like these things are like, you know, a Kit Kat bar or something just rah! Right, because you don't expect it to be Norris. Because he's, he's like this guy who just has a perfectly even temper. He's just hanging out. He's not... Because the other guys, they might not like each other. You know, there's this scene where 
Nalls is like roller skating. He's the cook. He's like roller skating around. He's listening to Stevie Wonder's Superstitious. And Bennings, he's like, turn that crap down. I've been shocked today. And then Nalls is like, yeah, okay. And then he doesn't turn it down. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some tension there already. And that's one of the things about this movie is that you're in this environment that people have been known to kind of lose their minds in. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things about the film is actually the setting of Antarctica. Oh, yeah. Uh, because, yeah, the, the thing is, the creature is actually really cool. But I think the environment that the thing is in is where it really shines. You know, we, we don't think about settings too much, but they're they're sometimes more important than the monster and the creature. Because if you take the right creature, but put him in the wrong setting, your film's going to fall flat. Mm-hmm. Your setting has to give that creature, that entity, that villain space to thrive in in order for us to really believe that the characters are in trouble um right. you know i i like some of the other examples that i was thinking of was like predator you know mm-hmm. predator in the jungle predator prey beautiful like you know i was thinking of the mist set in the grocery store you know having all these different people cramped together in this grocery store where you can't see outside so it's just this looming mystery and it's something that's so like Everybody goes to the grocery store. Like, imagine if you could never leave. Like, the the routine trip to the grocery store was your last normal day. Absolutely. And that's where that's, like, the grocery store fits perfectly in that setting. Because it it gives the story plenty of room to add conflict, to bring all these characters together, to have conflicts and stuff. And I think having this movie set in Antarctica is brilliant from multiple angles. Because, number one... um. You're having this super desolate area, this space, right? That has been known to to drive people to cabin fever, right? There's you you get bored, you start getting lonely, start getting antsy, you know. It, mm-hmm. It's a cold place, so the cold tends to drive people crazier, you know. If you're not adjusted yeah. for that temperature, one of my favorite quotes is David Fincher saying, "Like rain makes people miserable. That's why in seven it's always raining, like in every scene, <laughs> except for the ending. But from a story perspective, it's brilliant because it keeps everybody indoors with this thing. If you go out, you're going 100 below, 40 below. Who can survive out there for that long? You eventually have to go back in, you know, and that puts you in close proximity with this creature. It puts you in close proximity with people you don't trust, who you're starting to become distrustful of. That's an amazing that that's an uh, amazing uh, interplay, you know, because now this mm-hmm. is giving the creature, the thing space to thrive in. You know, it's giving all these warm bodies together, um, you know, and what can defeat and, the thing? Fire, the, com- the complete opposite of of snow, you know. So I think mm-hmm. there's something kind of beautiful in that in, in that, you know, having fire destroy the thing. And they're like, at, at a certain point, they're, the characters say, if this thing gets out, it'll just go into another hibernation state and wait for the rescue team. So it really, the setting, the Antarctic base is beautiful for this creature. It's so cut off from everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that you need in a, in a movie like this. It kind of reminds me of Aliens, or not mm-hmm. Aliens, Alien, mm-hmm. the first one. Um, because you have these these characters who are, you know, working a job, and some of them really don't like the job that they're in. 
and they're cut off from the rest of humanity. Yeah. And they're stuck with these people who have different priorities, might not like each other. And then all of a sudden, an alien monster that you have no way of fighting. It's physio- physiology. It's biology. It's nothing that you can even comprehend. You have a hard time believing it's even real. And you're stuck with these people who you might not like to deal with this. Yeah. And once you start upping the temperature... You know, in terms of like the pressure that everyone's feeling about how they who they can and can't trust it, it it's that's where the tension really starts coming in it reminded me a lot of the descent you know talk about another movie that mm-hmm. has a great setting in it with these underground caves once there's terror and tension you know oh we've left this equipment behind oh i saw something moving but i can't that's when that's where the real terror starts coming in and i really felt that with this movie and with this movie this brought in a lot of dread because you just feel hopelessness every time some they're bickering. You know, they're like, well, this person did this and this person did that. And blah, blah, blah. it's like, you guys, this isn't productive. But on the other hand, I can't blame them. You know, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't act any differently. You would be really no. suspicious. And this is literally a game of Among Us. <laughs> it really is. And I think that's how um, relevant and... Um, that's like the long lasting effect of this movie. You know, I don't think that there would be Among Us without The Thing. Specifically, John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm-hmm. Because it, the, in the, this movie, The Thing is smart. You yes. know, like I feel like sometimes we like to put, put ourselves in a horror movie and be like, okay, would I survive this movie? In this movie, I'm kind of wondering if I was The Thing, would I have won? Is that just me, or were you thinking that too? No, well, I was thinking about it from the survivor's perspective. If I was a survivor, would I have survived it? And honestly, I don't think I would have. I don't know if any of us would, but the thing, the alien in this movie, it is intelligent. Mm-hmm. Like, when I was watching the movie, right, like, I know that the dog guy was alone with the dog. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the smartest guy in the movie, Dr. Blair, is like, watch Clark. So it's like, all right, Clark is sus. <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah clark is sus. and then when clark is killed right and his eyes are open looking up and his body is is tied up next to the doctors and nalls is like looking back at it we're nalls there because we know it's clark it's gotta be clark and the way his eyes are like looking up at nalls it's like oh shit he's gonna get he's gonna be next and then when they clear Nalls, it's like, oh, okay, he's safe. And he's, he's like deputized with the flamethrower. <laughs> and then they, t- they test Clark, and it's not him. And Clark was human, huh? Which makes you a murderer, don't it? Well, that was, that was bl- brilliant because, I mean, the, so the reveal is that Blair is actually one of the things, right? That's roaming the camp. We don't know exactly when Blair got hit. There's a shot of the dog walking in on someone who's in a room. All you see is their silhouette and the dog goes in. Mm-hmm. You could very much assume that it's Blair. I mean, John Carpenter did that very intentionally. You're not supposed to know who's in there, right? But you are right. But you assume that something happened in that room, that the dog assimilated whoever was in that room. It could have been easily been Blair. And the entire time, Blair, the Blair thing was guiding McCree and saying, hey, it's Clark, because the thing knows Clark's hanging out with 
Clark was, I was next to Clark when I was in dog form, you know? Right. So follow that and dude. It, and if you're the thing, right. And you, cause I, I think when it was the dog, it was like watching everybody. Oh right? yeah. It was like watching when the helicopter was leaving, watching when it was coming back and that kind of listening in on the conversations that was ha- were happening. And I think it, it's, it takes time to like assimilate right mm-hmm. like it tries to assimilate with bennings and gets caught and it's like fuck <laughs> yeah. like runs out in the cold well it's, it's like it's, just... it's like an assassin getting caught in the kill during among us yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so it knows clark they're going to be watching clark so i don't need to to infect clark because they're going to be suspicious of him anyway i'm going to go into somebody who they don't suspect and it's the Norris guy. And and it caught people off guard. It caught, uh, you weren't expecting that. You I was literally not were not expecting it. that. So I was like, it's going to be Clark. And it, it, it wasn't him. And when it wasn't him, you're like, oh shit, they just, call, just, they just killed an innocent dude. I mean, granted, he did come at McCree with a scalpel, but still, you're like. Yeah, because he knows, he knows McCready doesn't trust him. Yeah. Blair says, watch Clark. And then McCready tells everybody else, watch Clark. That's going to get back to Clark. Yeah. Clark is going to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Clark is going to be on edge. Well, he's so he, al- was, he just... was already on a- edge when Blair was asking him, like, were you, you were hanging out with the dog, right? Why wasn't the dog put back in the kettle? Hey, man, what are you what are you trying to say? Huh? What are you trying <laughs> to imply? And yeah. that's where you could already tell, like, oh, shit. And and that's when our suspicion of Clark really began was in that scene. But mm-hmm. by that point, Blair might have already been the thing, the Blair thing. I don't think I don't think he was infected with the thing until until fuchs is missing it's so up to interpretation because because you don't know and it's a perfect copy that's something that they stress it's like it's nearly perfect like this thing sounds smells perfect it's it's perfect what once it's finished assimilating so we have no clue when blair got hit and plus he was building blair blair thing was building that spaceship he was there for hours Mm-hmm. building that thing so we have no clue when it exactly happened i don't think it was blair until uh he's like i'm fine whatever i'm i want to come back inside whatever was there's nothing wrong with me and if there was i'm all better now like that's that's when i know okay he's 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 sus no he's but see, <laughs> i but see that's what i like it because that's when you believe he's sus but there's mm-hmm. no what I like about this movie is that there is really no confirmation of that. No, it's just like you lay out your evidence, but you can never really know. Like, you know, it was it was Norris because he literally literally transforms. Yes. And, you know, it was Palmer because he literally transforms. But when they were infected, you don't really know. And when did these transformations take place? Where did they take place? You have no clue. And the film, I, I mentioned it earlier, but the film will kind of, you know, show things sometimes from a POV perspective. You know, who, who's, whose position am I in? Who, who, who am I seeing? Like, whose eyes am I seeing through right now? The film mm-hmm. keeps that ambiguous. There's a ton of those POV shots. Sometimes um, the film will fade in and out, you know, to show that, the pa- that there's been a passage of time. You know, like when Nalls and McCready go up there and they're like, all right, we'll right. be back in like 20, 15 minutes or whatever. 45 minutes pass. What the fuck happened in those 45 <laughs> minutes the, uh, before the final battle? They see Childs leaving his post like where he was supposed to be. They're like, hey, wait here. If Blair comes back, it is without us fucking waste him. 
And then they mm-hmm. see Charles run away. And then the generators go down. You have mm-hmm. you have no idea what these characters are doing for that long of a period. And this happens throughout the movie. And at that point, you're like, well, what happened? What did I miss? Mm-hmm. You, you don't know. You know, you know that certain characters are doing this thing and they're they're working on some some tests and some stuff like that. But, you know, what happened to everyone? You can't account for all the characters. That's what makes it so brilliant. There are yeah, lapses. And I, I feel like you're not like it's it's not like um, unfair because there are some clues. Yes. You know, there is like something you can go back and trace and you're you're led astray because the people don't trust each other. Yeah. And you believe that they don't trust each other because we don't really trust each other that much. And yeah. there is a innate distrust of other people. Like when somebody tells you something, it's like, really? Are you sure? You know? Well, and you're you're already kind of sort of privy to the fact that like some of these characters, there's already some level of distrust before the film even began. You know, Benny's telling Nalls, hey, lower the music. Nalls just lies and doesn't do it. Little subtle thing. And then you've got like Palmer saying, I'll fly out to the Norwegian base. And they're like, no, McCree's going to do it. Winds are going to let up a tad next couple of hours. A tad? Can't condone it much myself, but it is a short haul. An hour there, an hour back. Shit, Doc, I'll give you the lift. No problem. Forget it, Palmer. Hey, thanks for thinking about it, though. There's already a level, a little bit of distrust there. Or, it's like they don't like Palmer as much as they like McCready. It says here only eight weeks. Well, that's not long enough for guys to go bunkers. Bullshit, Bonham. Five minutes is enough to put a man over down here. Damn straight. I mean, look at Palmer. He been the way he is since the first day. Yeah, you know, and, and look. And McCready doesn't like anybody. Well, yeah, but the film is already establishing that there's maybe a lack of trust with people already. I mean, someone mm-hmm. made the comment about, uh, what's his name, uh, Gary, killing the Norwegian. I was wondering when El Capitan was going to get a chance to use his pop gun. And it's like, yeah. well, it's not Gary's fault. The, I mean, look, Nor- the Norwegian dude was running around base shooting this fucking dog. They had no idea what was happening. And he already hit a person, like yeah. one of his... So uh, there's already a level of distrust that's happening. So at the end, when they're all arguing with each other, who the fuck is telling the truth? These people, even before the thing was introduced, they were already lying to each other. Mm-hmm. That's what's so great. It's you can't believe anybody. And even <laughs> and that goes all the way until the ending where it's like, well, we know that McCready isn't the thing because we've been following. He's the main protagonist, but Childs. And there's there's even this scene where McCready is alone with the recorder, right? And he's recording mess a message saying one other thing. I think it rips through your clothes when it takes you over. Windows found some shredded long johns, but the name tag was missing. And then later on we see McCready's jacket ripped up. But McCready's name is clear on it, so he's being set up. Oh it's that little detail that was like, oh, you think you're clever. But <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, did you get McCready? Is he the thing? No, but that's and the thing. I'm like the, the thing was outsmarting them the whole time, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it goes back to what you were saying. You know, most people like to do this where it's like, oh, I'm so smart. I'm so clever. I would survive a horror film. All these characters are stupid. It's like good luck in this movie because <laughs> yeah. you know how impatient 
and reckless people get playing among us or how emotional people get playing among us oh my god yeah you're fucking wasted in this movie there's no chance that you'd survive you you could if you if you trust each other but these characters don't trust each other but once you find one person caught in a lie or catch one person that is the thing that trust goes away at that point it's not about well my relationship my friendship with this person it becomes survival to a certain extent they don't even they don't even trust themselves. Yeah. Like when he's doing the blood test, you can see when people are about to get tested, they're they're afraid of what's going to happen because they don't even know if they're infected. Well, there's you know? that like there's that like relief like. <sighs> and I think that ha- you can see that in Among Us, too, when when people are trying to tell their story, like even if they're perfectly like they're just a crewmate. Man, I feel like this we're going in on the Among Us a lot on this episode. But but, but it fits perfectly I like, though. I feel like everybody's played it, right? Well, no, no. It, this was one of the most popular games during the pandemic, right? When everybody mm-hmm. was isolated in their own space, you know, going yep. a little cabin fever, building up a little cabin fever. It makes sense. And AOC was playing it on Twitch. It's it's a relatable feeling. It's frustrating when you're telling the truth and people aren't believing you. It's frustrating as hell, but it's really cathartic. If you're the killer getting away with it. Yes, it really is. And you like you you accuse people who you know are innocent and they'll make everyone suspicious of them. Like you see the thing do it in the movie by leaving McCready's jacket with his name on it. Mm-hmm. And then Palmer's like, oh, I ain't going with Windows. Cause I think at that point Palmer is the thing. It's Palmer thing. Mm. Making people sus of windows. Yeah. <laughs> It, oh man, that it, that's what this movie gets so right. And the whole time you're you're wondering, I don't know who to trust or what to believe, you know? It adds a layer, an extra layer. So you're not it's not just a creature feature where you're seeing like Michael Myers go around killing people, which still I'm not I'm not shitting on. I really like Halloween. I think it's great. But, you know, after a while you are seeing teens getting killed in creatively different ways, you know, by this omnipotent force, but here it's like the thing's winning because everybody's distrustful of everybody. And you're trying to be like a detective and figure this shit out. But even you're like, well, I, I don't know, man. I could be wrong. You, know, <laughs> you were wrong. About, we were both wrong about Clark. When I first saw this movie, I yeah. thought Clark was uh, thought Clark was sus as hell. Turns out he's uh, for sure. He was an alien. Yeah. I thought like they were going to they cut to when they cut to Nalls looking at his body and then cut back to Nalls's face. I'm like, oh, shit. Nalls is going to get it. Yeah. He's going to they're going to test him. He's going to be a thing. He's going to turn around. He's going to be, he's going to already be a monster. I'm trying to assimilate to him. And it's not. I loved it. And uh, let's talk about the creature effects. That's one of the best standouts of this film. I know that this movie is accused of like not having good characters. And I feel like the characters are perfect for this movie. Yeah. You know, because you, you get the idea of who everybody is relatively quickly. You got the people who are career scientists and biologists you know fuchs dr blair bennings norris uh, and then you got the people who are there because the pay is good you got mccready palmer clark um i would say Nalls and windows mm-hmm. would probably be like that um so i th- i feel like like alien you get the idea of who these people are very quickly yeah but if that does if you're not seeing the movie for that and that um, that human relationship, the human distrust of these people whose 
ideologies are not the same as you. There's also the amazing creature stuff. Which, I mean, has held up phenomenally well. Like, there are some things that, you know, in certain lights look looks a little strange, particularly when they find that twisted man in the Norwegian base. Like, mm-hmm. there's that, like, nice sheen to it. It's kind of, like, rubbery. But, yeah. but, I mean, that's still, like, this is a creature from outer space, you know, that was going through some metamorphosis. I don't know what the fuck that is. It still looked cool. Like, I was still intrigued by what I was seeing. The twisted, mm-hmm. contorted nature of the face just splitting apart. I was like, whoa, this is cool to look at, you know? But outside of that, like, the actual transformation phases, like, when the thing is trying to assimilate or, like, you know, trying to... Uh, tear itself apart to like separate are incredible yeah. the dogs are is, is a great way to start because that's when you really get like okay this is what this movie has going for it one of the aspects mm-hmm. right um that's when you're like oh this is the kind of horror movie we're gonna get right because yeah. up until that point things are like kind of spooky a little suspenseful it's like where are those why are those norwegians so crazy what's wrong with them well yeah exactly well, why were they crazy and that question is immediately answered once you see that inner dog head come out of the dog head Right. Like the like it's like a flower just opens up and there's like a a muscly, bloody dog head inside. Before that, though, like the Hmm? like the way the dog is walking around, there's something weird about it. When he when the dog comes in through the hallway. Yeah. It like has a purpose. And it's like there's something wrong with this dog. I was going to say I was going to say jokingly, the dog is probably the best actor in the movie. (laughs) And that's not and I'm not saying that to discredit anyone else, because I think everybody's doing a great job. Everyone's doing a great, phenomenal job. But that dog is creepy as fuck. That dog is the best dog actor that has ever been in a movie. Yeah, because move over air, bud. Oh, my God. That dog has like some creepy ass stanzas and looks. And it's and it's like. What's so great about that dog is you look at it and you're like, I know exactly what that dog is thinking. Mm-hmm. And there's like something nefarious about it. Like there's a scene where like the dog was going to go into one room and it like turns his head and it starts heading to another one. And obviously mm-hmm. there were like, you know, trainers behind the camera like, OK, come here, baby, you know. Yeah. But I I couldn't tell. I, I, I bought mm-hmm. that the dog was a nefarious alien being on the hunt. <laughs> So that dog, that dog yeah. was, gave that dog a raise. And they put the, when they put the dog in with the kennel and with the rest of the dogs and the rest of the dogs are like, there's something wrong with this dog. Yeah. And he's that, just like sitting there looking at the wall. Like I've seen my cats and my dog do the same thing where they're just like looking at a wall. Like there's nothing there. What are you doing? And it makes me feel uneasy. Yeah. There's something creepy about animals doing that. Like there's something wrong with this dog. And then. Something that probably audiences have never seen before. The dog's face sprouts open and tentacles come out. And it starts spewing like this liquid and it like grabs the other dogs. And the dogs are like, what the fuck? Even the dogs are freaked out. They're trying so desperately to escape the cage. Oh my god. Yeah, those dogs were freaking out. And and that was already, that makes it even more distressing. Because the dog, the dog, one of them's biting the fence open. Like that dog mm-hmm. is going to do everything it can to escape. So Rob Botten and his team, you know, you were the ones who created the creature effects for the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Of the $15 million budget, $1.5 million of it was used for the creature effects. $1.5 million. That's insane. That's a lot of money. And I read earlier that 
Originally, they were going to be given 200,000 for the creature effects. Yeah. And at that point in time, it was the most money ever allocated to creature effects. 200,000? 200,000. Was yeah. the most? And they, yeah, that- and they multiplied that figure. That's <laughs> insane. 1.5 million. That's one twelfth of your budget. That's, I don't know what the percentage is. You know, beep, boop, boop, boop. It's a lot of your budget <laughs> to go to, to the creature effects. But it was worth it. Every dollar mm-hmm. shines. It was it was crazy. And Rob uh, Botton, which we're going to get into later. Uh, he, he's a really cool guy. Uh, but that kettle scene was actually commissioned to Stan Winston, who we've talked about before on Predator. A lot. Yeah. On Predator, Terminator. Now, Stan Winston didn't take credit for it. He got like a thank you credit because even he's like, this is Rob's film. Like Rob worked his ass off. He's the one who came up with all these beautiful designs and creatures and stuff. But Rob was overwhelmed by the amount of work that he had. You know, him and his team had. Did you see how old Rob was when they were making this movie? 21 years old. And being given that much money to create the creature effects. And these effects have held up incredibly well. 40 years later, we're still talking about this. And people are still being grossed out by this. Beautiful. I mean, Rob killed it. And Stan was, I, I this makes me love Stan even more. Because even he was like, look, man, I came here to help. But this is Rob's film. Like, that's the MVP. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was cool that Stan Winston kind of also had a hand in this film as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and that kettle scene's awesome. And that's when you really start getting a sense of, okay, what this creature is and how can you defeat it? In one scene, pretty great. He, they burn it up pretty good. And like, so you know that this thing can be beaten. You know, if you can identify it and catch it in the act, you can beat it. You know, mm-hmm. I hate to do it again, but in Among Us, if you see the, <laughs> the imposter kill a crewmate, everybody's like, all right, it's you. Yeah. And you know, shoot him off in the space. Easy peasy. Yeah. Now, oh, the like, game is still going because there's still, there's well, still there's more two, movie and That's left. what I was going to say. There's <laughs> two of them. There's two killers or three. Mm-hmm. And by this point, you know, you're not even really sure if the dog was walking free. It got someone mm-hmm. among us and the thing. They've got like a they've got a, a close union. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but the effects are incredible. I mean, we're talking about one effect done by Stan Winston and his team. But the rest of the film done by Rob. Incredible. Bennings. Like, um, and that yell, the, ah! Yes, it's just so, because he looks like a person, right? He looks like, you know, but his hands are all fucked up. His hands look like lobsters. And then that scream is just, oh, make it stop. And I I think the next kind of creature is, like, my favorite one, is when they're doing the um, defibrillator on... Norris, because mm-hmm. the stomach becomes like these giant teeth. It just opens yeah. up, chomps the guy's arms away. And then, like, the head, his head comes from his stomach and is, like, screaming at them. Well, it separates but itself. Like, the there's head, two like, heads. There's two heads. Two heads. Yeah. One comes from the stomach and goes up to the ceiling. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I, okay, I remember now. I and, remember. And okay, then, okay. The head that's like on the the human body just starts to scream and stretch and detach itself Mm -hmm. from the neck, plop down, form legs like spiders, and then like the eyeballs come out and it starts to skitter away. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so good. Man, it's 
And the here's what's so interesting about it. The way Rob explained it, so there's a documentary on kind of the making of, and the, the way Rob kind of pitched it is that, look, this alien has been across different planets and different galaxies, right? We don't know how long it's been doing this for. So all of these little extra things like the teeth, like the mouth opening up and the teeth, the elongated neck when the head stretches out, the legs that come out of the head. Like these are like attributes that have been assimilated from other creatures from different planets. <laughs> Damn. That's insane to think that like it's kind of been like collecting all this various DNA and just kind of adding it to its arsenal. I mean, if they hadn't noticed the head, he would have skittered off. Yeah. And it would have assimilated to someone else. That's insane. This thing can multiply so easily. At, at that point, like it's it's already killed the person it was trying to kill, right? It's trying to kill the doctor who is someone who the thing is worried about. Because this guy's he knows science. They gotta take care of him. And it it makes its kill, and then it just like goes crazy to to really distract the people. And then to like make its getaway with this little head. So like the 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 thing isn't unstoppable. Like you can kill it, but it goes to such lengths to survive that it's really hard to. And it's using everything it has it has in its inventory. You know, spider legs everything. check. You know, giant teeth to kill this guy check. It's it's inc- it's incredible. <laughs> it, would be, it would be the best StarCraft player in, in the oh, world. Yeah. <laughs> And what's so cool about that scene, I know we're throwing in like behind the scenes stuff, like which we don't normally do while we're talking about the movie. But there's just so many cool things about this movie that I just feel like before I forget and don't bring it up. It's fine. In that scene, right, when Norris dies and, you know, his head comes off and stuff, when there's a shot of the head kind of like separating itself. Right. And you get like that, like that really like long, like green muscle tissue almost or like those like veins or i don't know what it is right that sinew Mm. so apparently to get that shot they had to they put the camera on top and they had like a little like a little pole that was like that had some fire on it because for continuity's sake mccree was already burning shit in that room uh Mm -hmm. but when they lit it the first time because they had used various flammable chemicals to create that like veiny effect of the head oh, no. separating from the body, it blew up. There was a fire. <laughs> oh my god! You know they had to actually go in and like you know use fire extinguishers and stuff. It was an out of out of control fire. You oh, know nobody god. got hurt thankfully, but they were like, "Fuck, we have to get that again." You know, but this time be careful. That's mm-hmm. that's the links that Rob went to. This dude, because he was like, "Look, there was there wasn't things that we could use right off the bat. Like everything had to be created. You know, it wasn't like, yeah. oh, you need green veiny shit here. Use this. The, you know, they had a trial and error. Some things worked, some things didn't. And he was like, yeah. we had to basically use plastic, heated, melted plastic to create that effect. But that shit's flammable." And I, I can't blame Rob for not knowing, you know, I mean, he's trying to get this together and on a film set, things are hectic and chaotic, but dangerous. But on some hand, on one level, I have to, like, give the man props like, all right, you went really crazy with this stuff. Um, and thankfully, nobody was hurt um, for this part of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, incredible, incredible stuff because they sought out to, like, do something that nobody else had done before. You know, uh, uh, Carpenter, you know, he 
really wanted this to be unlike the science fiction movies that he saw and loved as mm-hmm. a kid. And he was fresh. He was frustrated with the monster always being a guy in a suit. He wanted something that was like this. This thing is an alien creature that doesn't have our physiology, the the anatomy of things on Earth. It's otherworldly. Let's make something that does that. So any idea that Botten had, he was like, yes, do it, do it. I know it's one of your favorite films, but Alien, and even John Carpenter said it, it's a dude in an alien suit. Which, look, hey, still crate design, cool. I'm not talking shit about the Xenomorph. But the thing is all different types of things. It's a hand puppet. You know, it's a mechanical puppet. It's a fucking animation in certain aspects you know in some scenes Mm -hmm. it's an animation it's like you're using all these different tools because this thing is unknowable we don't have an idea of what the base model of the thing looks like (laughs) we have no idea that's such a cool thing and again you know he said that when the spider legs pop out of the head you know he said that was when he was happy because you can't look Mm -hmm. at that and think oh that's a man in a cost in a in a costume the fuck no it's not like it's it's not that sells the fact that's like all right this thing i don't know i don't know how they put that together but that's not fucking human <laughs> yeah my favorite i think it's the other part that makes me laugh is when the head is crawling away and kurt russell's not looking at it the way it moves around is really funny to me yeah uh, and then it just stops in the hallway yeah and then they turn around I was like what the hell or i think uh palmer says you gotta be fucking kidding me it's, I, I love that line i love that line It's so good and that was a moment that i straight up just laughed yes because i'm like it- <laughs> you have no clue what the fuck you're dealing with mm-hmm. and the way he says it too it's just like you gotta be fucking kidding and and when they zoom in when they push up onto kurt russell's face and that face alone just sells everything that these characters all these characters are feeling Oh yeah. my god, why won't it die? And another thing that I noticed is I think Palmer is already the thing when he says this. Really? Yeah. So when he says it and he outs the thing, it's like, okay, well he's human because he was looking out for everybody. But the the, the head wasn't crawling away. It was just standing there looking at them. If oh. it really wanted to get away, I feel like it could have gotten away. <laughs> So the thing was like, okay, I'm going to get sell them a bit of confidence. It was playing 5D chess, dude. <laughs> it's incredible. We would not survive if we were in this movie. No, we wouldn't. No, and Rob Bottom <laughs> is, uh, is incredible. And like the stuff he does, like the practical effects that that he created for this film, the, the stuff that Stan Winston did, beautiful with the, with the dogs, beautiful. And then oh, yeah. there's like a bunch of, um, uh, one of the animators... One of the lead, one of the lead animators, I believe, his name's Randy Cook, right? He worked in some of the stuff at the final, at the final scene. Do you know what film franchise he would go to, go on to work in? I would say Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings. Okay, I guess Star Wars was pretty much almost over in '82. But in the 2000s, Randy Cook would go on to work at Weta for Lord of the Rings. So it's just, nice. it's really cool how like these, you know, we see these kind of reoccurring names, you know, Stan Winston, uh, Randy Cook just come up in some of these films. Because, you know, these guys have been in the game for so long that they know how to achieve this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so the second iteration of the thing 
uh, or the, I guess the third would be when uh, it's revealed that Palmer was uh, an imitation mm-hmm. and they do the blood test on Palmer. And it's what I love about that scene is that it catches me off guard because he's like looking at Gary's like, I know it's going to be you, Gary. I'm just doing going through the motions until I get to you. We'll do you last. But, like, why is it? If you think it's why are you talking to him like it's Gary? You know, like it's not Gary anymore. If it's if it's not Gary. You know what I mean? That, well, it's like psychologically, it just gets to you, right? Like, it, yeah. it's like, wait, um, why am I talking to this person like it's Gary? It's clearly not Gary. Or it if, could if be, I believe it's to... not Gary, why am I calling him Gary? Yeah. The same thing happens with Childs when Childs has locked McCready out. And then he's like, oh, shit, he's going to the storage room. Um, you're a dead man, McCready. Or whatever you are, you know, <laughs> but he like you, you want to kill McCready. All right. You're not <laughs> You're not, you're not trying to kill the alien. Yeah. You said McCready's name first. <laughs> well, it's like some resentment. Some of the resentment that they've been building up has is finally yeah. coming out. And it's like, I'm going to fuck you up, Gary. It's like, <laughs> bro, if I am the creature, why are you talking to me like I'm Gary? I'm clearly not Gary. You, you know what I mean? Like, Gary's yeah. gone. Yeah. Uh, unless, um, but then someone did bring up an interesting point. It's like, what happens when you're consumed by the thing? Like, do you still have, like... Do you think that you're still you? You know how Star Wars has the Wikipedia? Mm-hmm. The thing has Outpost31.com. Oh, I thought it was like it, a thingopedia. <laughs> it's a huge fan site. Um, John Carpenter gives it his stamp, his uh, stamp of approval. Uh, that takes note of the timeline of the thing, talks about all the deleted scenes and the novelization, and an FAQ which goes over a bunch of things that people have um, questions about with the movie. Like, did the dog thing escape through the roof? Because you see, like, the the thing, like, kind of hit the roof and the roof comes off a little bit. What happened to the burned Norwegian corpse in the storeroom? Is Blair's computer program accurate? They answer all of these questions, right? And one of them was, uh, if you're the thing, why don't you know it? You know, but it's because... The people are stressed out. You know, they don't know if they're the thing or not. But the thing knows. The thing is very smart. When it assimilates with you, it has all of your memories. It has all of, like, it's able to talk like you. It's able to um, use your mannerisms. They don't know when they're infected because it's a perfect imitation. And when it takes over, that part of you is gone. Right, like the part of the you that makes you you is gone, but everything else is copied. It goes so far that in the script, Norris, uh, the guy who has a heart attack, he has a heart condition. So when the thing assimilates with him, it also copies the heart condition. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> but in the in the movie as it is, the part of the movie that reveals that information about his heart condition isn't. Like it's just something that happens in the movie, and it's like, oh, what's happening? Yeah, well, but, we, you 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 get the you get the gist of it really well. Like, oh, he he has a heart condition, which is fine. You know, or he's he's so stressed out by everything, his heart's acting up. I mean, shit, I I probably will not be far from that. Right. So I I think it knows exactly how to copy you, so that even your friends don't know you're you're you've been replaced. Yeah. Um. So, uh, it turns out to be Palmer when they're doing this blood test 
And the Palmer's transformation is so scary because so cool. McCready at this point doesn't trust anybody. So he has everybody tied up, but he has everybody tied up together. <laughs> so, so as they're, as they're testing, Palmer starts to transform and you have Childs played by Keith David freak the fuck out. You have Gary freak the fuck out. And they're like, get it, get him away from me. He's, he's, he's well, they're all sitting right next to each other on like the same like stool or bench or whatever. So mm-hmm. even if they wanted to, they can't, they can't leave. They're tied down with this thing right next <laughs> to them. And this thing is like expanding. Like its fingers are spreading out and like it's Palmer's face is melting and it's like yelling. Yeah. Oh! <laughs> and and the fire the 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 what's the the fire thing the flamethrower the flamethrowers aren't working so he yeah because he's been like he's had it like lit like this entire time because he's like threatening everybody I'm gonna blow everybody up if anybody gets too close and Windows is freaking out so he has a second flamethrower but he he's scared yeah he's never used a flamethrower before and man when the thing goes after him Palmer's head splits open in the two grabs Windows's head and starts lifting his body up. <laughs> and it is so that whole scene is scary and funny at the same time. To like Gary yeah. and Child's reaction to sitting right next to this thing. It's hilarious. And then Windows just being like tossed around. And it took a while for them to like turn the flamethrowers on. Like that that's the most damage that the thing could do. It's yeah. like I'm gonna infect one person and then try to run away. Yeah. And it, it doesn't really get very far. But Ooh. it has an ace in the hole. It's already got Blair. Yep. Um, but it, like, so when he burns Palmer thing, right, the backup helicopter pilot, he runs out into the snow, right? R- earlier on in the movie, they discovered that some of the things weren't dead because they weren't burned all the way. So now they're being more thorough with the burning. Mm-hmm. And what, what, <laughs> what McCready ends up doing is he burns it, the thing walks out into the snow and collapses. And then McCready's like, all right, just to be sure, he takes one of the sticks of dynamite and he throws it at the body and it explodes. Hey, man, when you got to be sure, you got to be sure. However, when they actually filmed this scene, the explosion from that dynamite was a lot bigger than anybody expected. <laughs> <laughs> so when Kurt Russell falls down, he falls down for real. Oh, shit. Was he hurt? Not too bad. Like he wasn't he was like laughing, but like explosives are dangerous. Yeah, yeah. And that was like a real explosion. Kurt Russell is awesome, man. I love this man. I like I know he's an actor and that yeah. sometimes these actors are sold to us to be badass when they're really not. <laughs> the rock. <coughs> but Kurt Russell is a badass. <laughs> like I, I don't think we've mentioned we've talked a lot about McCready, but he's awesome. Mm-hmm. Like he's incredible. Like he's he's like a very imperfect hero because if if he gave a little more of a shit, I feel like more people would have escaped. But because he's he's so protective of himself, he's he manages to survive till the end. You also have to understand, too, though, he I think he's borderline an alcoholic in this movie. All he wants to do is get drunk in his cabin. And he is beyond exhausted. Like he he has a short temper, which we've established with the chess game. But he's also really exhausted. He's mm-hmm. like, I haven't slept for two days. That will drive yeah. anybody crazy. And the fact that he's still able to have some composure by the end of it, that he's not like a raging lunatic. 
he has a goal to survive. Yeah. And I think that he, when he gives his speech, right, he's like, some of you, I know I'm human. I don't know. I know some of you are still human too, because if you were all things, you'd attack me. So like, okay, he's, he's a leader. He's trying to do the best for the team. But by the end, he's out for himself. Mm-hmm. He ties everybody up and he tests them one by one and only unties them when they've passed his test. And then towards the end, when the, the uh, Blair thing is picking everybody off, the reason he doesn't get assimilated is because he lights that dynamite before he goes and checks. I feel like another, you know, like a Clark Kent type would have gone in. I'm going to find Nulls. I need to know. McCready's like, uh, he's not answering. I got to go. Which is a smart thing to he's, do, honestly. He's not answering, so I'm going to light this dynamite. And, and that's what forces the thing to like, oh, shit, I got to stop that dynamite. I yeah. got to stop his plan. So before it's able to like trick him, it has to like go in when it's like in its monster form, which is it's uh, the final version of the thing. It's assimilated like three different people. It still has the dog DNA somehow. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, it's the, the most horrifying it looks, I guess. Um, it's the biggest it's ever been. Mm-hmm. And it kind of does like a tremors move where it like goes through the ground and knocks down yeah. Kurt Russell and takes away the dynamite. And then right about, right about when it's going to chomp on McCready, McCready says, Fuck you too. And then he throws the dynamite in its mouth and blows the whole base up, pretty much. I, you know, you know, it's funny because we talk about, well, this character wouldn't do this, and some character wouldn't do that, and sometimes that can be true. You know, sometimes when a when a writer, director, or studio is trying to make a character altruistic or you know the good guy, sometimes they will like needlessly like I need to go and save that person, you know. But McCready's like, like if you're not answering me, given everything that's happened. I'm going to blow you up because I'm not taking the chance. And I respect that on some level. <laughs> I do. Nalls was gone at that point. There was nothing McCready could do for him. Nalls was no, gone. No, there wasn't. No, there wasn't. But before that, maybe, I don't know. I feel like there, there could have been something that, that could have been done if they trusted each other more, but it's not but, in well, human nature to trust people in those situations. And again, we are talking about a movie that is very purposely built to be dark and dreadful and hopeless and nihilistic so having someone like kurt russell's character in this movie it makes total sense like it's not Mm -hmm. it's it's totally in line with the theme with the tone that they set up you know because if this was an optimistic cheery film then yeah kurt russell being like that kurt um kurt russell's character probably existed in another movie that person would be portrayed as the villain, like the selfish villain. But here it's like, <laughs> yeah, if this was Fuchs's movie, it, you know, I feel like it'd have a happier ending. Yeah. And maybe more people would have survived at the end. Yeah. But there's a reason he dies so fast. You know, I think the thing, the thing identifies him as a, a problem, you know, because well, the thing goes after Norris. And then and then it's going against all the all the people that are like trying to figure out how can we identify this? Yeah, know? but I think if Fuchs was the one that kind of pulls McCready in the right direction into becoming a leader, into becoming uh, thorough with everything. Like he's the one that's like, OK, well, those things aren't dead yet. We have to finish them off. Everyone should eat their own meals and eat from canned foods so that there's no contamination. You know, he's the one that's trying to figure everything out and then he gets whacked. Yeah. You know, he's like the third one or something. 
Yeah. Well, it's after Bennings, uh, in that point, it become an issue. Mm-hmm. Y- yeah. Yeah. It, it, a very different filmmaker would have approached this movie very differently. And if the studio had been a lot more hands on, I could see that. Like, if they knew the kind of film that they would have gotten, and people not liking the tone and stuff, they would have totally rewritten this movie. And honestly, it might have been for the worse. I think what we got yeah. is amazing. Yeah, I think so too. And there's stuff that was in the film. He has like a a blow up doll, a sex yeah. doll. It was completely cut out of the movie. There was a jump scare with the sex doll when they go up to the to his cabin with Nalls. There's like a fake out where the the doll like moves around and they think it's the thing. <laughs> well, and that's actually something that I wanted to touch on because they took it out because they felt like it was too cliched and. That's something I like about this movie. It has jump scares, obviously, but it doesn't feel like the filmmakers are using it as a shortcut to create tension when there isn't any, if that makes right. sense. like So, for example, we've seen that cliche of a character's body dropping conveniently as the as a character's walking by, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, whoa, but it doesn't make sense why it was why it fell at that moment like it doesn't that you know it's a lapse in it's just it's just a movie thing it's a movie thing that we have just been conditioned to hey that that's supposed to happen it's cool and it's fun sure but it is cliche the thing about this movie is none of the jump scares stand out as being cliche like everything is story driven mm-hmm. everything has a reason as to why it's a jump scare for example the doc's hands getting you know, when it's defibrillating, defibrillating, <laughs> when it's, you know, when he's trying to resuscitate Norris, that's a jump scare because the thing is trying to defend itself, right? It wants to take out the doctor as well. Yeah. Jump scare, totally in line with the story, everything that's happening. The jump scare with the the blood, you know, it pops up because the, the thing senses danger. It senses the heat. And because heat is its weakness, one of its weakness, it just, you know, it... It reacts to it. It reacts harshly. It's like if you touch something that's hot and you weren't expecting it to. Yeah, and every part of it is alive. Exactly. That's why it's a good test. That's why it's a good test. Yeah, when you touch something hot and you're not expecting it to, you, ah, you know, you push, you you pull your hand back, you know? Yeah. And and when the, when the, when the blood reacts, it reacts like a, like a, almost like that human behavior. It like pulls back, you know, and it jumps up and yeah. that's a jump scare, but it works. It's not a cheap jump scare. It's totally in line with with the tone and everything it's not a cliche and i mean as far as i can tell there are there any cheap jump scares in this movie i don't think so like there's a part where fuchs is in the room by himself and the power goes out and then like a figure walks by his door and he's like who's there like i guess that's kind of a jump scare because it even plays that like super 80s like As the shadow walks by. I would give you that. It is partly cliche, but then Fuge dies in the next scene when he goes out. Or he's found dead. Or he, he's found dead, but we don't know exactly what happened. Mm. Right? He's burned alive and some of them are saying that he killed himself to odd, like off himself. But we don't know what happened and we don't know who that was. I, I think he did. I think he killed himself to prevent from being assimilated because I think Fuchs is kind of the moral character of the movie he's the guy that's looking out for people and he's trying to outwit the thing but he still cares about the people he's with but here and here's how i'll say that that jump scare is different because in another film i could see that jump scare playing out like this the lights go out feud steps out he's like who's there and then someone like with a lighter will come up hey it's just me windows relax buddy there's nothing to worry about 
And then Fuse is like, oh, okay. And then he goes back to doing what he's doing. In this movie, it plays out very differently. Fugue goes out. Someone walks by. He's like, who's there? You get no response. Fugue goes outside. And then we do one of those beautiful fade out, fade ins. And Fugue is gone. You have no idea what the fuck happened to that, bro. I mean, you, you can only, you can say he burned himself. His body was burned. But we don't exactly know. And we don't even know who, who walked by him. So even when it is at its most cliched, it's still not as cliched as, uh, gee, Fuchs, you look scared. It's <laughs> like you saw a, a, a ghost or something. I, even then, I don't even think that, that somebody saying like that, a character in movie saying something like that would be out of character. But it's not as interesting as what we do get. Because yes. Fuchs goes out and he sees McCready's jacket ripped up right after McCready recorded himself saying i think the thing takes your clothes when it takes you you know well, like that is more interesting than yes. a fake out jump scare yeah well and you're absolutely right i could see either Nalls or palmer saying that to fuse right relax it's no biggie the lights went out but the way that they play it and the results of it, it's like whoa this stuff really does come out of nowhere and it could attack you at any moment and really those are the three jump scares except maybe like the 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 wood planks like a la tremors but even <laughs> at that point you're already building up tension when mccready's like nulls and nulls isn't responding you know so yeah even the jump the jump scares are so good in this movie they are not the typical ones yeah there's there's a lot of great stuff in this movie man it's so much great stuff it's, and it's I think a wonderful we, movie <laughs> it is so good um and it, it's like amazing how it was made too a little bit of how it was made it was actually a movie before called The Thing from Another World in 1951. However, which I didn't mention this before, but it, that movie was based off of a novella from 1938 called Who Goes There? Written by a John W. Campbell. It's actually closer to John Carpenter's The Thing than The Thing from Another World. The Thing from Another World very different movie they're almost like it's almost like the thing isn't even a remake of the thing from another world because in that movie they don't really go into the whole shapeshifter part of it it's more like alien where this thing it has like pods and it needs like a human host and the, they end up like there's an actor in a suit playing the thing you know um and it's it ends with like this really cheesy very 50s um watch the skies watch the skies they're coming for us you know it's like oh the russians are coming for us i get it you know um and when they wanted to make the thing uh they wanted to go back to the source material because in the source material the shape-shifting was a major part of the story it's set in antarctica and these scientists discover an alien spacecraft and they accidentally destroy it, but unleash a creature that kills one of them and uh, assimilates and imitates them. It also imitates a dog and they discover the dog thing and they're like, okay, well, there's aliens out here. We've got to find them. The doctor, he's, he's, uh, he starts destroying stuff. He feels bad because he wanted to, to preserve all the alien stuff as the find of the century. And then 
they discover how to like test for to to see who's the thing and who's not the thing, and it's a blood test from this movie, and a bunch of them turn out to be imitations, and they have to they kill all of them on sight until there's only like a few people left, and then they end up blowing up the the station and stuff. They discover that the thing was trying to build a spaceship and it would have escaped off world. So it's pretty similar to like the movie that we got. And in creating the thing, a producer, he actually has a whole blog post about this, the entire process. I didn't get a chance to read the whole thing. And Stuart Cohen is the one that made the blog about it. It's called the original fan.blogspot.com. And he goes through this entire process of making this movie. It goes from a bunch of different writers who all neglect the shape-shifting part of the movie. And he, he starts to, to get the wheels going on this movie in 1976. And shortly after, Alien comes out, right? So as they're trying to like get the balls work, working on this Alien or this uh, thing adaptation, Alien comes out and it proves to the studio that this scary sci-fi movie is a viable option. So then uh, he gets in touch with a writer who also shares a vision of having the shapeshifter be the main thing in this movie, the idea that you can't trust anybody. And they get in contact with John Carpenter, who has his hit movie, Halloween, come out in the late 70s. And that's kind of how it all starts. You have people who all have this vision of not trusting your friend. That's like the big theme from this mm-hmm. from, from the film. We spent quite a big deal of, of time talking about just that. And there's probably still more stuff that like we haven't even picked up on or actually mm-hmm. spoken about. But that's that that's what makes that's what makes the the ninety the eighty two film so great is that it's literally built that mistrust is built into the it's baked into the filmmaking as well, mm-hmm. which I haven't seen the, the the one before but maybe not as it's not as big on that it's more about the people who want to preserve it to sell it you know and to like oh this is the scientific find of the century versus the other people who want to destroy it and preserve mankind. And in the, the novella, there is somebody who wants to preserve it. But once it gets out of control, they're like, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, in this film, in the 82 version, there's a, a line about how oh, we can't destroy this. This is the find of the century. Yeah. And then right after that, it's like, OK, screw that. We're destroying this thing. There are two things that I did want to talk about really briefly um, that stood out to me was just the. Uh, the sound and the filmmaking, the, the cinematography. Oh, that's right. The, okay. I, so, I did remember something else. Yeah. That's pretty major. Yeah. Uh, the cinematography is beautiful, right? This mm-hmm. movie is like the the actual setting, the location. They filmed this in British Columbia and in Alaska, but it's gorgeous, right? And the photography is right. really beautiful. But what I love about it is once it gets dark at night, it is like a different, it just takes on a whole different feeling, right? Because mm-hmm. it's pitch black. It's the, the movie is really drawn by five hues, right? White and black, gray, red and blue. Mm-hmm. Like those are your most prominent hues, right? 
The gray right. comes from the indoor setting, most people's clothing, right? You've got the white from the snow, you've got the black from the sky, and like the darkness that comes in, like when the generator's blown out and stuff. Uh, and then you've got the blue from some of the uh, from the emergency lights that they have posted around the camp mm-hmm. that are really prominent, right? And it just sells how cold it is too, which is great. And then you've got the red from the flares and the fire and the dynamite. And I just, those, those five hues, like kind of just mixed together, just brought all together. It's just, man, some beautiful cinematography. You know, mm-hmm. this was, uh, this movie was shot by Dean Cudley, Cudley, Cundy. And he also shot Halloween with Carpenter. So they were, they were already, you know, collaborators, but this was their first major studio film. And I'm happy to say that Dean really took it far. You know, it really reminded me of like uh, the, the the descent again. You know how that movie had mm-hmm. like those red, strong sources of main lights. This movie, it has maybe not that same intense main light source, but it does use like those diegetic lights. You know, the blue light, emergency lights, the red from the flares, and really lights. There are some incredible shots in here. Like when McCready comes back from the store after he was left out by Knowles and he mm-hmm. breaks in and he takes the dynamite. When he opens the door, he's covered in he's covered in snow. It's pitch black in there. And he's got a he's got um a flare that's lighting him. Mm-hmm. And it just looks beautiful. I, so I had to mention that. Cinematography yeah. is incredible. Now the score is really interesting. The score is is amazing and it goes really hard. And that's because the legendary Ennio Morricone. He's incredible. Italian composer did a bunch of uh, did a bunch of western. I mean, he did I think The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, Once Upon a Time in America. I mean, this guy's a legend. Once Upon a Time right? in the West. Oh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, and legendary legendary guy. And he worked with um, you know this was his first time working with John Carpenter, and John was like. Listen, I he wanted to delegate more work, right? Because normally John Carpenter's like, I'm going to do it all, right? I'm going to write my own story. I'm going to score my own movie. Mm-hmm. But the movie, this project was so big. This movie was so big. He it was so the much- biggest movie that he'd ever done up to this point. Yeah, so he delegated the writing to Bill, Lanca- uh, Bill Lancaster, right? He delegated writing the, the writing to him. And then he also brought Ennio to score the film. Now, what's interesting is that Ennio... Kind of, there was not rough patches, but I guess it took some acclimating to because Enya was doing all this music and he was, you know, he brought in synths because he knew like John Carpenter likes his synth synthesizers, but John like just had to keep bringing them down. It's like, look, you're doing a lot. You have to bring it down to its core elements, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, you, you're doing too much. You have to, a few notes, just a few notes. That's all we need. Right. And Ennio was making this. He hadn't seen a single frame of the movie. What? He was just scoring. He didn't see a single frame of the movie. He was just uh, when he started working on it. Now, later on, he might have seen something, but he was just making he was just he was just given notes by John Carpenter and asked to work off of that. You know, and and Ennio's doing a whole bunch of orchestra synthesizers. And John's like, no, you have to whittle it down to its most basic elements. And that's how we get the wonderful dun dun. Dun, 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 you know mm-hmm. and it's beautiful it's fantastic now the problem 
is that, and we've mentioned this before, but when this movie came out, this movie was ripped apart. It did not make that much money, um, and critics did not like it. And Ennio got a Razzie nomination <gasps> for Worst Musical Score. What? Yeah, for this movie. Now, if you don't know, the Razzies are basically the the uh, anti-Oscars. They, they give these shitty awards to movies that are shitty. You know, like, the worst performance of the year goes to this person. It's, it's fucked up. It's, it's super, like, mean-spirited and, like... It's very mean-spirited. No need, I, no need to, like, make a whole s- ceremony or whatever about it. And I, and this was such a misguided effort that it was like, this is so stupid. Like, this movie, this movie really was not understood at its time when it, it came really out. It really was not understood. And it, it like, it's kind of sad because I know that this affected John Carpenter. Like he he got to make like the biggest movie. Like he did an interview with David Letterman. I watched that one. Uh, it was before this movie came out. It was like when it was about to come out. He's coming out to like talk about this new movie that he's working on. And of course, like before he comes out, they're like, he's talking about how big of a success Halloween was. He's like, we did a movie on a $300,000 budget and made $70 million. So he's he's like on top of the world right now. He's on David Letterman talking about this new thing he's excited about. Shows a little clip of the movie and everyone's like, oh my god, how horrifying. The movie comes out and it's called Trash. And his score is getting, that he had Ennio Morricone work on, is getting a Razzie nomination. Jeez. All those like... Right. So this, hard, it hurt him a lot. Yeah, all that hard work that the 20-21-year-old 20, Rob Button put into making those effects that nobody had ever seen before effects that still look really, really good given the circumstances, you know, he had to invent, I don't know if he invented new stuff to do it, but he had to work really hard to do it. He's 22 years old, 21 years old. He, he was hospitalized. He was hospitalized during the making of the movie. Cause he was just, he had a whole bunch of issues cause he was just committed to making this thing work. He was overworked. Um, you know, and he, 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 him and some of his team had to like sleep at the universal lot just because there was so much work to be done, you know, and just some of the reviews for this. It's like, clearly you don't like this movie because of how violent it is, but you're trying to justify it in a shitty way. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't like gore and violence, that's fine, but that doesn't automatically mean the movie's bad. I will talk about some of the reviews later. We'll talk about the reception for this movie later, but Enyo got a Razzie nomination. Now the funny thing is that years later, in 2015, a little movie called The Hateful Eight came out, directed <laughs> by Quentin Tarantino. And Tarantino got en- Ennio to score that movie. Some of the music that wasn't used on the thing was actually used in The Hateful Eight. That's crazy. And for The Hateful Eight, Ennio won an Oscar. Huh. So, yeah, fuck you, Razzies. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. It, it's incredible. Also, I just want to make it a, a, also a, a funny observation that I made while watching this movie. The thing is very similar to The Hateful Eight as well. well but, but it's more than like Kurt Russell. I mean, it's basically Kurt Russell stuck during a blizzard in the snow, surrounded in a room of people he can't trust, and him trying to figure out 
who's grifting him. Mm-hmm. And mo- both movies were scored by Enya Morricone. Yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting. I thought that was funny. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about the reception of the movie? Yeah, let's talk about the reception of the movie. Yeah, so we, we mentioned it in the first part, but this movie was not received well. Uh, it got middling reviews. Box office was bad. I mean, it topped that number eight in the box office. Um, why did this movie fail? Right. It, it was not seen by a win. It was such a loss that Universal actually cut. Or um, here it says in response to the commercial bombing of the film, the studio canceled the multi-picture deal they had with Carpenter, who noted that his career would have been different if the film had been successful. Wow. This movie got blasted. I mean, some of the people, some of the some of what the critics were saying, you know, Vincent. Vincent Cabley said, it's too phony looking to be disgusting. It qualifies only as instant junk. Someone said, hard to tell who's being attacked and hard to care. Roger Ebert said that he was disappointed by the superficial characterizations and the implausible behavior and dismissed the film as nothing more than an alien knockoff. Uh, Christian Nibby, the director of the original thing from another world, the 1951, 1951 version publicly denounced Carpenter's version saying, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for JNB scotch. And John's a fan of the original 1951 version. He was a fan. He likes that movie. Mm-hmm. So to have the director of a movie that you likes trash yours must've fucking hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie, I mean, it, it was not it was not well received. Now, there's different reasons for that. People are speculating, and with the stuff, you could always it's always a speculation. There's no real concrete answer as to why some of these things happen. One of the things, one of the first initial things that people point to is the fact that this released two weeks after a or after E. T. Right during the summer. E. T. is like the complete opposite of this movie. Right, you've got an alien who's really cute and sweet, and it's a family fun adventure by one of the Hollywood's favorite directors, Steven Spielberg. Two weeks later, you've got this movie that is basically the antithesis of that. I guess people were so chummy with E.T. that they didn't want to see a nihilistic version of aliens coming here. Mm-hmm. And they had done some market research that said that, you know. The genre was just being that people were sick of this stuff, the sick of horror films and that there was a saturation of fantasy science fiction because other movies released that year that had something to do with science fiction and fantasy. Conan the Barbarian, right? Poltergeist, Star Trek Wrath of Khan, E.T., Blade Runner, Madamax 2 and Tron. So you had a bunch of these science fiction fantasy films all coming out. You know, and you had one of the biggest films of of all time come out too, E.T. Yep, fantastic year, but you know it could be oversaturation, and it could just be that people fell in love with E.T. so much that they just didn't want your your hopeless science fiction take on aliens. Yeah, it's not. You know? it, I do. I did see someone um, talk about how the recession of of eighty two might have been to blame due to the uh, the oil the energy crisis in seventy nine. But it didn't. Well, there were there was a recession. Yeah, it didn't seemingly affect the box office numbers, but the numbers of the movies that did very well were more hopeful movies. They weren't as grim and dark as as this. 
You don't get the the darker stuff until like eighty four, maybe eighty six, or I mean, you're you're talking about post seventy nine, Star Wars, you know, all these all these positive family adventures, you know, and you'll have grittier stuff every now and then. But you're right, the gritty stuff came in way later. And another thing that contributed to the low box office is, was its R rating. You know, now here's the thing, and this is a fact: if your movie is R rated, you are going to make less than a PG-13 film. Mm -hmm. Because Poltergeist had come out. It was one of the biggest hits. Poltergeist made $121 But Poltergeist was rated PG. That means family and their children can go. Thing, you can't take children in. Or most parents aren't going to want to take their children in. So you're automatically making less money off of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And also people talked about the the poor marketing strategy for this movie. Uh, They were blaming Universal. They're saying, you didn't do enough to push this. You, you know, maybe... um, a title change or you could have you 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 could have you know you maybe you wanted to compete with aliens too much or you, maybe you didn't compete enough or you didn't attract the aliens fans because alien was a box office hit mm-hmm. it's tough to say but you know i mean i think that ebert called this like an alien like it's not as good as alien and i do think mm-hmm. that it's very similar to alien but yeah. i feel like this it makes it makes it different enough. Like it, it's different enough to justify its existence. Like the oh yeah yeah yeah. I I wouldn't say I wouldn't say this movie shouldn't exist because Alien already did it. No no no. It's different enough. Um, different styles, different approaches, different filmmaking. And I mean, and they started getting a sense that this movie was not going to do well because they did like they did focus group tests on this movie, which you and I used to do all the time, mm-hmm. right? We yeah, we 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 did that. We would sit in on some of the the post screening questions, right? When they would ask focus groups, "What did you think of it?" and stuff like that. Now, here's a funny quote: After one marketing research screening, Carpenter uh, asked the audience on their thoughts, and one audience one audience member asked, "Well, what happened in the end? Which one was the thing?" <laughs> when Carpenter responded that it was up to their imagination, the audience member responded, "Oh God, I hate that." <laughs> Doesn't that sound like some shit we've heard? Oh, yeah. Like, I don't... I feel like it's not really that important, like, which one is the thing at that point, right? It doesn't matter, because they both die. Like, it, it, it's not... And that's not the point of the film, but people do obsess about this stuff. They'll always be like, well, I want to know everything. Well, sometimes you don't get the answers. Or sometimes you have to, like, yeah. make it make sense for you. Yeah. It's... But they did shoot... They did shoot an alternate ending for this movie, where McCready was rescued... And they tested his blood, and it's confirmed that he's not the thing. That was actually something that the editor recommended doing. The editor being um, <clears throat> Todd Ramsey. He was like, hey, since we've got Principal Cass here, we might as well just film this just in case. But they decided not to use it, which I think was the right call. Yeah, I I feel like the this he got a lot of freedom to do a lot of crazy stuff when they made the movie. Maybe the marketing wasn't good. Maybe they pulled it from theaters. Maybe they didn't um, weigh it out against what was doing really well at the time. You know, but in some cases, you can't really make the movie for the audience of the time. You know, because then that movie's not going to last forever. The people who made this movie knew the story that they wanted to tell, and they all had. The idea of making a movie where nobody could trust anybody. That was the heart and soul of the movie. And they got some really crazy creature stuff out of it. And I think in those mm-hmm. areas, it's 
it's a great movie. Maybe the audience wasn't of 82 wasn't ready for that. But if they would have made, if they would have changed their vision to something that would have, you know, hit the audience of 82, maybe it wouldn't have been a great movie. It's tough to say, man. It Ultimately, I think they made a good film. Mm-hmm. They made a great film um, and people recognize it. And now it's considered one of the best, greatest horror, one of the greatest horror films of all time, along with like the other greats, you know, Friday the 13th and uh, Alien and all these others. And it's like, well, it finally got the recognition it deserved. But man, I do feel bad for um, for John Carpenter because he got screwed because he was a great filmmaker and he made a great film and he got roasted for it because people were just oh, didn't, you know. didn't get it, I guess. And, and to be fair, there are those people that found this movie squeamish that that really were bothered by all of like the the uh, infection scenes and all the, you know, like the body uh, autopsy scenes, you know, and that's fair enough. If that bothers you, that bothers you. There's no way that your opinion is going to change on that. Mm-hmm. And maybe people were squeamish at the time, more squeamish than they were uh, than we are now. But this movie succeeded in home video. And so I'm guessing that there were a bunch of kids that started growing up with this stuff, watching it as kids being grossed out by being intrigued by it. And now they're like, oh, this movie's awesome. I don't know. what My parents were fucking crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> for not liking this movie. Yeah. It's funny how stuff like that happens. Like you, you watch a movie and it's like, oh, man, this is amazing. And then you see the box office numbers and it's like, oh, why didn't people like this movie? It's almost like, I don't know, sometimes the people like what they like. Right. Yeah. And it's like you can't really make a movie for the people, for most people. You got to make the movie that you think is is worth making. Well, you got you got to make a movie that you want to make and just hope that there's an audience for it. And yeah, that's that's one way to go about it. And we know how there was definitely an audience for this movie because of how many people downloaded Among Us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, man, I, I think that's everything I have to say about this movie. I, I love it. Oh, there is. So I did want to say, though, there is a video game on the thing that was released in PlayStation 2 back in 2002. It came out on the PlayStation 2, and it's apparently a sequel to the original thing. Oh, boy. And I was kind of curious, so I read up on it, you know, just seeing like, all right, let me, you know. Let me just read about it a little bit. And it's an interesting plot, you know. It takes place with, like, some American special forces going to the American oh and the Norwegian camps to try to figure out what ha- what's happening and stuff like that. And, you know, there's a conspiracy theory and government. And one of the guys is like, oh, I can control the infection. So I'm going to – I want to repopulate the world with this infection. So they tried to like give that. the thing the aliens treatment, but it I don't think that they succeeded there. Well, apparently the game was well-received. Oh, okay. People liked it. I, I don't know. I mean, just looking at the story, that's kind of vaguely what it's about. <laughs> but something did interesting come up about it. So at the very end, there's like, you know, kind of like the, the the ending of the film that we had, the, the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like a person that becomes a thing, like a giant version of it. And your character, I guess his name's called Blake. Um, Someone flies in on a helicopter and you get on. There's like a giant machine gun and you have to shoot this thing down, right? You have to destroy Mm -hmm. it. Here's what it says in the wiki. Whitley transforms into into a massive thing creature. Blakes encounters a helicopter pilot who helps him (laughs) defeat the Whitley thing. As the helicopter flies away from the base, the pilot reveals himself to be R.J. McCready. McCready. 
RJ McCready, U.S. Outpost North 31. Yeah. And I was like, wait a second. Hold on, how does that end? And apparently in the film and in, in the video game, you like find a tape recorder that McCready leaves. You find Childs' body, but you don't find McCready. Childs is by himself. Oh, wow. So and here's the thing. John Carpenter has a cameo in the game and he gives the game his blessing. So does that mean that McCready is the thing? No, no, it means no, no, no. It means that McCready survived the ending of the film and sees all this commotion with the special forces, decides to take one of their helicopters at some point. I don't know about that. I think it I think he's the thing. <laughs> I don't think so. It doesn't seem like it. it doesn't it doesn't seem that from from what I read in the description, it doesn't seem like the like it's implied that he is. It just sounds like McCready found a way to survive. So, but I don't know. That's I'll funny. just you know what McCready's alive canonically. Canonically, all according right. To John Carpenter, right. they did make that prequel movie in 2011. Um, I've watched yes. a scene from it, and it's like okay, they got that assimilation thing. It's horrifying, but it's it like kills people so fast. It's like oh man, it's not hitting the same spots as as the the other one because the I think what makes the thing so great is that you can tell it's trying its hardest to survive and it just, it's kind of like barely making it you know yeah well and there's just something i don't like about something like that because it's like clearly a sequel that's doing the same thing that the original is doing and not adding anything to it just the visual effects like upgrade yeah the, the visual effects are, are pretty horrifying yeah but at that point it's like well but you're doing the same thing yeah you know it's same hallways norwegian base it's the same beat. It even does the the thing where it's like, oh, this is the where it, it it was sealed in the ice. You know, it's so it's so similar to like Prometheus, where like they see the seat where the space jockey is. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, we're going back to the source. Yeah, but I've never been too crazy about that personally. No, nah, it's and it's funny I- that they how similar Alien and and the thing are in that they they became very successful later on and they made sequels and. And they they gave it like the okay now we're gonna have commandos in here, you know, and now we're gonna have yeah. an origin story. And we're gonna see the thing that we recognize from the first movie that we liked, and that's where things really start coming out. It's yeah, coming off the off the track because it's like we don't care about. I mean, people say they do, but they really don't. And what's the explanation? It came from outer space. All right, well that I don't. Yeah, it's like well, that's not why I like the movie. You know, there's so many movies about yeah. aliens coming from outer space. What I like about this one is the story it tells with with these characters and the paranoia and all that stuff. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. That's what makes this movie really good. So this is the part of, this is the part of the episode where we wrap up and instead of giving a five star rating for the movie, uh, we'd summarize how we feel about the movie with a quote from the movie. It could be our favorite quote. It could be a quote that represents how we feel about the movie itself or how we feel about the conversation we just had. Uh, George usually goes first, and George usually breaks the rules. So I actually only have one quote for this movie, but it's my favorite quote, and I loved it, and I kept rewinding it when I was watching the movie. And it's basically when Norris's head grows legs and it tries walking <laughs> away, and Palmer says, you gotta be fucking kidding. 
<laughs> I love the way he read that line. I love Kurt Russell's fake face. Mm-hmm. It apparently is one of Kurt Russell's favorite lines. He kept laughing at it. And I'm like, it's great. And honestly, watching this movie and just seeing the lengths that this thing would go to to survive, I'm like, oh, you gotta be fucking kidding. Like, yeah. it just won't die. <laughs> it's amazing. I love it. And it's my, that's, that's my quote. It's, mwah. Okay. That's a good quote. It's, it would have been my quote, but I was like, I was thinking about it because there's so many good lines in the movie. I'm trying to think of one that like represents how I feel, but I don't know. It's just, I feel a lot of things in this movie and there's a scene in this movie where somebody's feeling a lot of things. Um, so I'm going to pick that quote. Uh, Gary's the last one to be tested with the blood test and they test him and Hey, he's human. He's fine. And he responds with, I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, but when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jesus. But that's uh, was another moment that was funny. It was funny because there's at the very end of this test scene, there's two of them left. It's Childs and it's Gary. And then Childs is tested and he's human and he's like, all right, cut me out of here. Cut me out of here. Cut me out of here. Because he thinks Gary is going to transform and start eating him. But that doesn't yeah. happen. It's, <laughs> so it's like <sighs> it's like that I told I fucking told you so moment for him. Yeah. Um, now fucking get me off this couch. Yes. It's he's going through a lot of emotions there. And I, I love it. Oh, 100%. I love it. That is our episode for John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, we will be back in two weeks with Dracula, the the old one. We're going back to the black and white era. We're going to be closer in the time when the original the thing from, from another world came out. We're going to the Bela Lugosi days. Uh, and then after that, we're going to be wrapping up our spooky Halloween theme with Bram Stoker's Dracula, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. So you'll have a lot of vampires from retrograde podcasts in the future. Yep, we we've had a lot of interesting, we've had a lot of fun going through these spooky spooky movies. It will be coming to an end soon. We'll, we will be turning the dial to happier films, but maybe we'll um, see. Yeah, we'll see. But uh yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this. And I, we were talking about Dracula because um you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula is celebrating its uh an important anniversary and we were like, "Hey, let's Let's compare that to the original one and let's see, you know, compare and contrast. Kind of like what we did with uh, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Willy and the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So should be really interesting. Yes. So I'm excited. Awesome. You can follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at retrograde underscore pod retrograde underscore pod we have a discord where we talk about movies that we're excited about and video games and stuff we have a youtube retrograde podcast um we have a facebook but the all the updates there are automated from the rss feed where you can listen to the podcast so don't expect much there follow us on the other stuff you'll find fun stuff there um yeah and with that we will see you in two weeks. Goodbye.